Welcome to The Collector's Show, where you'll learn insider secrets about collecting everything, best places to buy, how to judge authenticity, and what are the collectibles of the next generation. Here's your host, Harold Nickel. Well, hello, greetings, and welcome. Welcome to another week's worth of The Collector's Show with me, Harold Nickel, here on Web Talk Radio, coming to you from what is a bit of a patchwork of a studio. We're having some flooring redone in the place in our house where I typically do the program, and so I've had to move my my computer and microphone, a portable microphone that I don't often use, out onto the kitchen table. So um, if I sound more disorganized than than usual, that may be why. It's uh, a lot different, and making sure that this portable rig would work with my uh, really better higher-end stuff was a bit of a chore, but, you know, not terrible. We're going to be talking about a really interesting collection coming up in the interview segment of the program. The National Museum of Funeral History is going to be the topic of our interview segment, and um, I really enjoyed that. And I really enjoyed last week uh, Lisa Sweezy and the interview about collecting ventriloquist dolls. I never could get past calling them dummies. I just didn't like it. It just seemed so, I don't know, mean or negative. Pick your favorite word. But she was a terrific interview. And if you missed it, you can go back and download it here on the Web Talk Radio website. Or you can go to iTunes and get it. There's really no good reason to ever miss an episode of The Collector's Show. You can subscribe. And if you've missed something, you can download it. And the price is always right. It's free. Let's do the news, news from the world of collecting. You knew that this was going to happen, but you were still disappointed when you learned about it. At least that's the way I read it, because for $500,000, a collectible Charlie Hebdo issue can be yours. People making money off of tragedy certainly isn't, isn't anything new. There's a Craigslist ad that says a copy of the issue of Charlie Hebdo, the January the 7th issue, which came out after the terrorist attacks in Paris. It's a half a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Um, And the seller told the Village Voice, boy, there's a reputable publication, that he's got at least one offer for the issue. Now, here's a thing that you should stop and think before you spend a lot of money on the January 7th issue of Charlie Hebdo. There were 7 million copies of it made worldwide, okay? 7 million. And what do we know about collectibles that causes them to go up in value? If you guessed scarcity, you guessed correctly. 7 million isn't scarce. 7 million of anything isn't scarce. 7,000 of anything isn't that scarce. So think twice before you do that. And, of course, there's all kinds of pencils and lampshades and pillowcases and all kinds of stuff for sale online. There's the Charlie Ebdu-themed engagement ring. You can get that on Etsy. And the tagline is weird. Bling for freedom. 
yuck. So, like I say, disappointing but not surprising. And in a more soul-affirming item, there is a preview of Mondo's amazing new Iron Giant collectible figure. And, you know, some of these figures are really expensive, and this one is no... This one is no different. It's $300, but it's a giant Iron Giant. He's that lovable war machine from Iron Giant. He's got wonderful details, which you would expect in an item that's that pricey. And there's another, and this one is a little bit more collectible in that there were only 250 of them made. There's an addition with the hand underfoot, and it's got that wandering hand that creeps around Hogarth's house while the giant lurks in the barn. It's pretty cool, and um, you know, it's one of those days I wish, I wish I could show video. But um, I'll post a photo of it to the Collector Show website, CollectorShow.net. Now, here's something from the world of collecting that you may not have ever known. It's the fact that you can buy shares in Collector's Universe. It's um, that value-added authentication and grading service, they sell shares. You can buy stock in Collector's Universe, which I thought was interesting because I've you know bought books from there and read articles and things like that. But I didn't realize they were publicly traded until I saw a press release that said they were increasing their quarterly cash dividend to $0.35 cents a share and that they'd be doing that starting the end of March. It's um, a very good sign when any company boosts their their quarterly payout and I'm and if I'm reading this right it says um, that its board of directors has approved an increase in its quarterly cash dividend to 35 cents a share per quarter for an expected total annual cash dividend of a dollar 40 per share now a dollar 40 and when I look these guys were trading at like twenty two dollars and change um, a buck forty from you know 2260 that's pretty good there's stocks from much bigger companies with share prices a lot higher than this that aren't paying anything near a dollar 40 or paying any dividend at all for that matter i may have to look into this more carefully so that's going to do it for the news before we get to our interview about the national museum of funeral history i want to talk about the flea market finder it's an app for your phone, whether you have a smartphone, iTunes, or your Android, any of those devices, you can go and download that app. If you're a collector, and if you're listening to this show, you probably are, you know you're always looking for that one item in your collection that's missing. And it could be a lot of different things. It could be the first in a series, the last in a series. It could be something that got accidentally thrown away accidentally given away it could be something that you broke well to go find those items flea markets are perfect they're great places to go and find collectibles how do you find a flea market well then you gotta spend time finding a flea market you gotta find a flea market to go find the item that you need you can cut that process way down if you've got the flea market finder app because once you have it downloaded you put your zip code in and it will tell you the address location of 
flea markets near you. They also have some small kind of resale shops listed also. So instead of wasting half your Saturday pouring through the newspaper or the interwebs to find the flea market nearest you, just use this. It doesn't cost anything. There's a free version. There's an upgraded version you can get as well. It cost me, when I downloaded it, I guess two or three months ago, a whopping 99 cents. You'll save so much time and frustration because you're going to get to the flea market that is located nearest you. Now, if you're looking at the Web Talk Radio webpage where the collector show is, there's a button up there in the top right. Click on it. You'll be able to download the Flea Market Finder app right to your phone. Okay, that's everything I wanted to talk about before we get to the interview. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned. The National Museum of Funeral History is next here on The Collector Show on Web Talk Radio with me, Harold Nichol. Well, it's the interview segment of The Collector's Show, and you may recall a few weeks ago I mentioned during our new segment that there were a number of museums that were non-traditional. The one we're going to speak to this morning is one of those. It's the National Museum of Funeral History. It's one of the most unique collections and museums I've ever heard about, and I like to talk to people from museums because most of them started with a collection that belonged to someone or was inspired by someone, and that is, again, the case today. We are going to talk with Genevieve Keeney, who is the president of the National Funeral Museum. Genevieve, welcome to The Collector Show. Well, thank you for having me. Now, I know that this may seem... Um, kind of silly, but when I first read about the National Funeral Museum, I got to tell you, I thought it was some kind of a Halloween attraction, and I don't mean to be unkind or disrespectful, um, but I just thought I'd kind of get that out of the way. Um, the word funeral kind of has a lot of baggage in uh, in Western lore. I don't think anybody would talk about the pyramids that way. But tell us about the kinds of reactions you get to the National Funeral Museum. Um, initially, uh, when I first started working here, it was kind of like climbing a mountain, getting people to change their perspective and truly embrace what the museum is about. And, you know, interesting that you should have mentioned the um, the holiday Halloween because um, when I first started here, there were several people that approached us and said, oh, well, can we have a Halloween party here? I said, no, I do not want that holiday associated with our museum by any means because mm. our museum is about respecting and honoring the dead mm -hmm. and respecting the families who have lost their loved ones and honoring a profession that has been taking care of you know, our deceased for many, many years, going all the way back to the Egyptians. Um, so it was interesting enough with, you know, with that being said, I was very, very much against the fact that people would view us like that, They were, that, that we, we were, you know, macabre and uh, we were creepy. And I said, no, that's not what we are. So to 
shift the paradigm and change the image and get people to truly understand what we are, I kept that um, stigma of being associated with Halloween as far away as possible until um, about three years ago. Oh, okay. I, w I was sitting here just feeling all kind of bad about even mentioning the word <laughs> Halloween and Yikes, I've, I've offended the guest five minutes in. No, that's <laughs> okay. Um, actually, um, interesting enough, I've listened to visitors. I've um, actually kind of gotten an idea of what kind of audience I have out there. What is it that people are expecting? What is it that people are willing to accept and be comfortable with and okay with when they're coming to our museum? And it's interesting, our museum does get more interest during the Halloween holiday, so with that being said, I had a gentleman approach me and said, you know, can I do a car show at your place? And I said, a car show? Why would you want to do a car show at our place? It yeah. Sense. And, and then I said, oh, well, we have a fascinating collection of cars. So it makes perfect sense. And uh, so it was a Halloween car show. So originally my, I was like, oh, no, you know, you're wanting to do it around Halloween and I don't associate our facility with that uh, holiday. And and before you know, he said, well, it's to raise money for charities. And I said, okay, I'm back in. Okay. And uh, so there you go. we started raising money for charities, and it was an, a wonderful annual event. And um, a lady approached me and said, can I have a private party here? And can I set up a haunted house? And I said, absolutely not. And then she said, no, it's very professional. It's very well done. These are, you know, business corporations from around the city bringing in their clientele. And I said, Okay, let's try it. And it's stuck, and we now are going on our third annual haunted house that we have here. It's become an attraction, and um, people are okay with it. Um, it's, it's become fun. We've taken and put fun into funerals, if you will, uh, around the Halloween holiday. And it also gives us the opportunity to um, talk about and embrace the Dio de los Muertos which is a traditional uh, holiday in the Latin American countries, which also celebrate their dead. So sure. we and were able to take it and put it in a perspective where people can appreciate it, have fun with it, but associate with it the way society has always get, you know, allowed them to understand death. I think the slogan, we put the fun back in funerals, is um, one that you might consider. I love that, that turn of a phrase. And you mentioned um, Dia, Dia de los Muertes. That's uh, you're in Houston, Texas, which of course uh, close to Mexico and has a very large population of um, folks from Mexico and other parts of Central and South America. So I'm glad to hear that um, it's a little bit more uh, fun and that people are are uh, using the museum for charity and fundraising. And things like that. Okay. So I just had to get that out of the way. Um, and thank goodness uh, it's uh, – I, I was so afraid I'd made you mad, but good. Oh, no, not at all. Okay, so yeah. – So how did we begin? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. how did you all get started? <laughs> yeah, so how did the collection come to be what it is today? Right. Um, it's, it's an interesting story. It's one that uh, I'm very, very honored to be able to tell in this um, interview here. Um, actually, uh, Mr. R.L. Waltrip – and a dear friend of his, um, who, if you may or may not know, is the uh, founder um, of and chairman of Service Corporation International, which is now one of the largest corporations in the funeral industry. Mm -hmm. And um, it was during his earlier times when he was 
basically, you know, going into the business and building the corporation and kind of, you know, buying up the mom-and-pop funeral homes um, and the equipment that goes with it. And as people were selling off their funeral homes, they were discarding the items um, that their funeral homes used for many, many years, or maybe their great-grandfather used that item um, because it was no longer being used anymore. It was mm-hmm. just being discarded. And interesting enough, it's like, what do you do with an embalming machine that was actually used? What do you do with a cooling board that actually held somebody? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do with a hearse that obviously carried somebody? It's just kind of one of those things that unless you have a profound respect, understanding, and or a interest and niche in the funeral industry and its items of significance, um, those items just get discarded. Mm-hmm. And so he was seeing that a lot of the the tools of the trade the um, the history of our industry was being thrown away oh. because there was just no nobody wanted it. It had no real value, and so that's how the museum came to be. He said, "I want a place where people can donate these items. I want a place where we can capture our history mm-hmm. because we are one of man's oldest professions, and it's it's a story that has evolved over time, and it's one that's." worthy of being told. And there's a lot of science that's involved with uh, with the profession, and it goes, you know, like you said, centuries, but all the way back to the Egyptians. And I'm very curious about the types of scientific items that you have in the collection there. Tell us about those. Uh, I, I would say the scientific items, of, of course, is going to be those that um, have to deal with embalming, because that's where your science is. Uh, you're dealing with chemicals um, that are obviously having a change at the cellular level of the human body, mm-hmm. and they're doing it in such a manner that you need to get a result that you are expecting so that when the, when the family comes in and views their loved one, uh, that they can do so, and it's an aesthetically appearing um, moment for them, something that they'll hold on to forever. So that's where the science is involved, um, and, and art as well. It's an art and science combined. How so? Tell me about that. Well, because an art, because, you know, any time that you are, you know, art is something to be looked at, something to be remembered or mm. to be inspired by. And when we're caring for somebody's loved one, we want to make sure that we can do the best job possible uh, with the tools that we have and the knowledge that we possess uh, to make that person look in a manner that a loved one's able to spend that those last moments with them, mm-hmm. um, be able to look at them and take away that last memory of them, and um, so it's, it's an art. Um, embalming is an art. You have to know. You have to understand the the human body. You have to understand the chemicals that you're working with. Um, what type of reaction you're going to get out of those chemicals? You have to. Make sure you use the right chemical, put it in the correct way, and uh, you have to watch it. You have to really, uh, you only get one chance Ooh. to do it right, and I'd, there's no do-overs. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that, um, Yeah, uh, that you get only, only one opportunity. And so these items and equipment and things have evolved over the years, and it sounded like Mr. Waltrip was interested in preserving the heritage and the progress that have been made 
in uh, in this industry, and that really sounds like it contributes a lot to the collection that you guys have. Yes, it does. Um, you know, probably two of the most significant um, collections at the museum that you will actually you could actually look and see evolution. Um, one is in the embalming equipment itself. In that exhibit, um, you know, we start out with the Egyptians, of course, because they were our first embalmers. Um, and, of course, they did their embalming techniques somewhat different, very different. They put their um, um, bodies in lye and, and withdrew the fluid from the body in whole mm-hmm. uh, to do the mummification. Um, but then when you go in, and to the Thomas Holmes exhibit, you'll see that that's when we started injecting the body with the chemical um, by way of a hand pump. And mm-hmm. then we went to a gravity bottle, which you see in the embalming lab, um, and then you'll see the machines that we, we still use today. But, of course, the machines get better and better right. know, through, through time. Um, so basically we just kind of went from uh, withdrawing the moisture to adding the chemical by hand pump, gravity bottle, machine. Right. And, um, and so you see that, that interesting uh, evolution of technology and equipment. And then the other one would be our, our Hearst collection. Hmm. Tell me, yeah, now, uh, when you mentioned earlier about the, the car show, my first thought was, well, he had hearses, and that was his car collection, but I was wrong about that. But um, I'm very interested in, in your hearse collection because it's not just cars. It goes all the way back to horse-drawn. Yes, and that's, that's how you see the, the vast difference in the vehicles and how are the vehicles evolved. Um, we, we do. We have the horse-drawn hearses and carriages. Um, we have the hand-cranked, you know, Model T, Ford Model T um, hearse. We have the hearse-ambulance combination. Um, we, and then you'll, uh, you'll see that we have the modern-day motorized hearse. So mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting to see how even the vehicles have changed over time, how the engines have changed, and, and uh, how we've gone from these, you know, really heavy-duty, you know, mean machine type vehicles into more you know sleek um you know the body's not so heavy but it's 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 interesting if you're a car collector our museum is a place to come and check out for sure um yeah the engines in some of the uh hearses from back in the middle of the 20th century were enormous oh yes and if a muffler ever went out on one you were in a lot of trouble because they were huge engines with um Four barrel carburetors and um, really the sort of thing you'd see in a truck or even a, a high performance yes. vehicle. And, and, and we do have um, uh, the hoods up on several of our hearses because we know that the car collectors that come in, we have the back doors open so that people can see the back of the hearse, of course, because mm-hmm. that's where everybody's interest is as well. But for the car enthusiasts, you know, some of the vehicles that we have the hoods up so they can actually admire the engine and, and how it. Uh, how it appeared back in those days. Now, there's a distinction also that I need you to help clear up if there is one. Caskets and coffins. You've got collections of both, and I'd like to know what the difference is between a casket and a coffin. Yes, that that term is used so interchangeably, and people really don't realize that there is a difference. There's a difference between a casket, a coffin, and a sarcophagus. Hmm. and I love challenging visitors when they come in, and I ask them that question, and nobody knows. Every now and then you'll get somebody that figures it out, but it's a very fun question to ask. 
And um, so hopefully the next time somebody visits, they'll have listened to the show and they'll know the answer. Let, um, let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, the difference is the, um, is the shape and the lid. Um, the, if you look back in time, um, Abraham Lincoln is buried in a coffin. Okay. Um, the lid comes off in its entirety, and the, um, the coffin is shaped to the contour of the body. It widens at the shoulders and narrows at the feet. Those are your traditional coffins. You do have, you know, straight, you know, wood-boxed coffins, but if its lid comes off in its entirety, it's more light. It's a coffin. Okay. Uh, the casket is uh, more rectangular in shape. And its lid is hinged on one side like a door. Okay. Um, nowadays, though, they are, I am seeing a coffin casket combo where oh. the lid is hinged, but it's shaped like a coffin. So it's interesting how, you know, things are changing now. So uh, we actually have a Western coffin in our collection now um, and uh, for uh, a tribute to you know, our rodeo days that are coming up. And uh, we bring out uh, very fine um, specifically made Western style caskets for cowboys and cowgirls. Um, they're custom made uh, here in Texas, and one of them is a coffin shape with a casket lid. So it kind of throws me off. Yeah, that that's kind of a hybrid, I guess, of uh, yeah. <laughs> of the <laughs> <modern> two. <laughs> and um, you mentioned uh, cowboys and cowgirls, and one of the things I noticed on the website is the collection of fantasy coffins. Um, And I wasn't quite sure how to feel about them. I mean, they looked like fun, but if I'm saying goodbye to a loved one, well, that's not any fun. What's wrong with my perception here? I think the perception is, is, is more likely two things. It's your geographical location, and it's your cultural background. Okay. So these actually are caskets, uh, they're coffins, excuse me, that are from Ghana, West Africa. Um, and so they're very well um, accepted uh, in their uh, culture, in their country. Uh, they are pieces that are actually um, handcrafted um, to pretty much depict um, what that person did in their life or hopes to, have, hopes to achieve in their afterlife. Okay. Interesting enough, these pieces, um, they're not allowed in churches. So if you're, you know, if your loved ones, you know, if you're a religious family and you're hoping to have the ceremony or the funeral in the church, then your loved one cannot be in one of those fantasy coffins um, for the ceremony or the service. Um, it has to be held outside. Oh. Um, but they are buried completely into the ground um, in the uh, different shapes that they are. Um, and they, they have a fascinating collection. I mean, you can go online and just see the ones that they still craft today. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're, they're an eye-catcher. Um, people don't realize that they are actual coffins, um, and they are burial containers. So especially when they look at the size of it, they in their mind, I can already tell they're trying to size it up and figure out how do they fit in there. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, I, I, when I was looking on the on your website, I, I had kind of the same question. But... Um... It sounds like, like you say, it's a cultural. It is. It's a cultural thing, and um, I guess that's the only filter I've got. Was that, like I say, it looked like fun, but. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another thing that the museum. Not only do we have an amazing collection of funerary stuff, but we have a collection of stuff throughout 
the entire world. Mm -hmm. And so not only are we bringing the American traditions of uh, funeral directing um, to the forefront and getting people to realize what a funeral is truly about, it's, it's really about the celebration of a life. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a ceremony, it's a custom, it's a rite of passage, it's something we will all experience one day. And everybody does it differently. And it's all derived from our culture and from our religious um, backgrounds and beliefs. And that's really what the museum showcases throughout its different um, collections is how people celebrate a life once lived. How do people commemorate that person and what does that ceremony look like for them? And and that is, uh, I think, well said. It's um, obviously the... The event itself isn't for the the person who's passed away. It's really for the ones who are remaining, the ones who are left behind. And I think it's a nice way to kind of, you know, close relationships with people. Um, it is. It's it's a it's a time where we all come together and we share memories of that person um, and we honor that person. We honor the fact that they did, you know have an impact on our life in some way, and they're going to leave a void in our life. It's a time for us to come together and support those that are left behind um, that obviously are impacted by that person's um, now absence. Um, so it is, it's kind of one of those things that if you don't take the time to have this, it's, it's almost culturally that something comes amiss, yeah. if you will. It, it's almost like it's hard to move on if you can't have that moment in time to reflect, to say goodbye, have that funeral, and it allows the people to say, "Okay, now we can go on." Yeah, I, I think it's. I think closure is the word I was struggling yes. to find there. Yes, yes, you're right. It is. It's. It's. It is. It bring, helps people bring closure. It helps put it in perspective. Now, there's another type of. Uh, casket or coffin that I've you know seen in movies and read about and it's one that I think um, had some kind of bell inside in case you know whoopsie we've buried somebody prematurely do you have any of those at the museum well actually it's not the bell is not inside the coffin so um, back then there would have been coffins um, it's uh, during the 14th and 15th century time period, there was, um, it was a time when they realized that they were um, burying people alive. And mm. they weren't doing it on purpose. They were just doing it out of, I want to use the word, ignorance. They didn't know any different. The, the diseases that they were succumbing to, um, you know, if they fell into a coma, of course, then they had, you know, they appeared to be dead. Sure. Uh, they didn't have the medical advanced devices or understanding of the human body or the technology that we have today to determine true death. And so they were burying these people thinking that they were dead. And um, after they, you know, had unearthed some coffins, they realized that they were being buried alive. So what they ended up doing, it was a device, if you will, um, that's the best word to use it, uh, to use for that. They would actually tie a string to the finger of the deceased. Oh. And then the string would actually be fed up through the lid of the coffin, fed up through the ground, 
and then it was attached to a bale and a pulley system that sat on the top of the earth Okay. Um, at their burial site. And then if they were to wake up and begin clawing or scratching, if you will, at the, the lid of their coffin trying to get out, they would begin pulling on this string that was attached to the bell at the top that, uh, that they didn't realize. And uh, so when the bell would ring, then they were saved by the bell. And that's where that expression came from. Exactly. Saved by the bell. And examples of where this happened, I guess, uh, hopefully not many? Um, I, we don't really have in writing any statistics on the numbers of people that were saved by that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the ringing of the bell. Um, we just know that we have the time period in which the devices were patented. Um, actually, during um, our fall season, we bring out and uh, we have what we call Dracula's, uh, a Dracula exhibit. Oh, cool. We actually showcase Dracula because he was a real person, and he has this kind of mystique uh, unknown about him, um, but he has an interesting story to be told. Um, and so we utilize him as our as our you know, our main character, if you will, for our exhibit, um, but allows people to actually stand in a coffin and take a picture, dress up like Dracula. So it's kind of an interactive piece, but it's also very educational because it's also when we bring out the um, the photos and uh, of the pattern of these um, bell devices that were used in those days. And we talk about the terms that came out of the 14th, 15th, and 16th century um, time period that were related to the cemeteries. I'm so yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> you have to come during the fall season. I, I'm, fun. I'm so there. I, I want to be uh, dressed as Dracula um, in a coffin, and um, that's going to look so good on my Facebook page. So. <laughs> I, well, we'd love to have you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Now, um, in the time we have left, Genevieve, I know you guys have some uh, events and and things that you want to share. And we've talked about a few, um, but they're not till October. But tell me about some other things you guys have coming up. Um, actually, we have in June, uh, that just came up on our calendar, uh, we have uh, the uh, profession, the International Professional Car Society. Uh, we'll be having a, a car show here. So I always encourage everyone to check our website um, and because it will always house all of the current events that we have up and coming. Uh, so in June, we have a, a car show where the Professional Car Society will bringing cars from all over the, the nation. Um, and these are all cars that were used um, in professions, um, the ambulances, the ambulance hearse combo, the hearses, the fire trucks. So you're going to see very, uh, a, a very unique collection from all different time periods um, here that we've never had. And, of course, the museum is not big enough to house a collection like that. But the museum is really big, isn't it? Um, yes, it is. People are actually surprised when they walk in. I would say nine out of ten times the common term that I hear around here is, wow. Yeah, I bet. They're like, I, I, I never knew all this existed. This is amazing. And, of course, it's deceiving from the outside because we just look like we're kind of like uh, like an industrial building. But once you walk inside, it's you, you totally get transformed. And a lot of people are like, you know what? I didn't realize how much history was in this museum. And everything is laid out in a way that is so organized. And it puts it in perspective. And at the same time, it's not sad. You're right. You know, it's it's not sad at all. There's, you know, that it's about death, 
mm-hmm. but the museum does not showcase death. The museum showcases the profession, the funeral, and how we celebrate life. Outstanding. I've I've so enjoyed talking to you. And before we go in the minute we have left, what's your website? How can we find you online? Um, our website is www.nmfh.org. Genevieve Keeney, who's the president of the National Funeral Museum, I want to thank you for making time to talk with us here on The Collector Show. Oh, well, you're very welcome, and I look forward to having you as a guest. I, I'm at the vampire exhibit. No <laughs> two ways about it. One more quick word right after this here on The Collector Show with Harold Nichol. Well, let's talk about another app that we've talked about here on The Collector Show lately, the Life360 app. And I've given you some kind of extreme examples from my life and from the news. Um, But another one where I was really glad that Marla, my wife, and I both have Life360 on our cell phones. And we both have the the iPhone. Um, She was visiting with uh, a friend of hers. And Marla, unlike me, didn't grow up in Southeast Texas and doesn't know her way around quite as well as I do. So she was visiting her friend at night. Um, Add to the fact that it was dark and that she wasn't necessarily familiar with the area. The fact that it got very, very foggy while she was trying to come home. And she called and said, Hey, I, (laughs) I don't know where I am. So, I got the phone out and was able to look and say, okay, here's where you are and here's where you go to find the main road to get back on your way home. What a handy deal that was with the Life360 app. You can do the same thing and it can be something as routine as all that or other things that are a lot more serious. I gave you another example once, but it's worth repeating. I was waiting on somebody... um, at the correct address. But what I didn't realize was that there were two sides and two different entrances to the building. And my, my buddy was literally 20 feet away from me, just at the other door. What kind of a place has two entrances? But anyway, um, if he and I had at that time had the life 360 app, um, a lot of inconvenience and time worrying, would have been saved. You got to go get this. It's not just a handy tool for helping your wife find her way home or meeting up with your friends at the right time and and place. It's a very good way to keep track of children and friends and are they on the way? Are they running late and not have to guess or worry needlessly. The Life360 app is a very handy deal. It will make your life better because it will reduce your anxiety. Go get the Life360 app today. I got it from iTunes. If you have an Android, you can go to where the Android people go. I don't know it. Or Google Plus, lots of places to get it. And the price is right. So go now, get the Life360 app today. I thought that was terrific, and I really appreciate that Genevieve Keeney, president of the museum, made time for us this week on The Collector Show. And 
the lesson here again is that a lot of what I'll call um, specialty museums or museums that are more targeted with their collections start out the way that this one did when R.L. Waltrip found that the equipment, lore, and history of his profession was literally being thrown away. He did something about it, and his collection has morphed into one of the most famous museums of its kind, if not the most famous museum of its kind. And for that, I know that all collectors can take a lesson. Next week, here on The Collector's Show, we are going to be talking about cryptography and a collection in Washington, D.C. that comes to us via the NSA or the National Security Agency. You don't want to miss that here on The Collector's Show with Harold Nickel on Web Talk Radio. Thanks for being here. Come back next week. Bye for now.